We are in the book of Malachi. So if you have your Bibles, go with me there. The prophet Malachi, he is your last Old Testament book. So if you're unsure where that is, just go to the Gospel of Matthew and hang a left. Malachi is right next door there. Um, you should have a handout here. This is uh, something that I put together for any book of the Bible that I, I teach. Um, and usually when I'm studying a book of the Bible, I, I start here. Uh, and this helps me to get oriented with the book because as we've uh, talked about in many other settings, we don't just, yeah, uh, books of the Bible don't just like drop in from nowhere without context, but they're written to a particular people at a particular time and a particular place around particular things. And that context is always very helpful to understand why the author is saying what he's saying under the inspiration of the Spirit. So this for me is very helpful. I encourage you to, to read over it later in your own study. Um, uh, I'll go through, so, I'll draw on some of this for the, uh, our intro here in just a second. On the back of this handout, you're going to notice an outline of Malachi. Uh, we're calling it the oracle against uh, empty religion. Um, and uh, this is an outline. It's not the only outline, but it's one that um, I came up uh, with to kind of synthesize what I think the flow of the book is. Encourage you to take this, make it better. Uh, but this is kind of a starting uh, place for you. So um, hopefully this will be helpful for you a little bit with some of the background. Uh, but we're just going to dive in here uh, to the book of, of Malachi. Verse 1, the, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now, before we get into who this prophet is and when he's speaking, it'd be helpful to, to step back and say, okay, where are we in, in history? So, what, what, what has been happening? Let's rewind back to um, after the, so you had Saul, you had David, you had Solomon as the first three kings. Then the kingdoms were split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was known as Israel. They had about 20 kings. All of them were bad. And in 722, they were exiled by Assyria. That was a judgment of God upon them for not obeying the law. He says, you don't want me as your God? You want idols? I'll give you idols. And he sends them the Assyrians. And the Assyrians came and took them off to captivity. Meanwhile, in the southern kingdom, also known as Judah, you had about 20 kings as well. Uh, some of them were good. Some of them were really good. Some of them were really bad. Uh, but you had a bit of a mix. And in light of more obedience in the south, uh, they had a longer time of, of history. But they too disobeyed the words of the Lord. So last night we studied the, the book of Zephaniah, kind of one of the final warning shots uh, at the nation before uh, Babylon came to take them away. And that's exactly what happened. In 605, Babylon came and exiled uh, the southern kingdom of, of Judah. It happened through three waves in, from 605 to 586. They came and took them off to Babylon uh, and they were captives there. <sighs> Fast forward to the year 539. So from 586 to 539, we've got about 50 years here. Uh, king Cyrus of Persia defeated King Nebuchadnezzar and took over his vast empire. So Persia eats Babylon, okay? Just as Babylon ate Assyria, this is what empires do, right? So Assyria ruled the world. Well, then here comes Babylon. They eat them, and then uh, the, Medes and the Persians come and eat uh, the, uh, the, the Babylonians. You can read about that fall uh, in Daniel chapter 5, uh, where uh, King Nebuchadnezzar was there on that very night, and Daniel read a prophecy to him, and sure enough, here comes uh, King Cyrus of Persia. 
Well, the very next year, in 538 B.C., uh, King Cyrus issues a decree that frees all of the Jewish exiles to return to their ancestral home. He tells them, you can go back to your homeland. This was prophesied by, um, by Isaiah that this would happen, and sure enough, King Cyrus issued this decree. So, in 537, the first group of Jewish exiles about 50,000 of them, uh, under the leadership of, uh, this is recorded in the book of Ezra, returned to Jerusalem, uh, led by Zerubbabel um, and, and a couple other uh, brothers. So about 50,000 Jews head back to, uh, their, to their homeland in Jerusalem. Then in 536, they began building the, the temple. Uh, but as they did, uh, persecution began to come from the surrounding neighbors, uh, the Samaritans and the Persians. Uh, they, they hated this work. They didn't want the Jews back in the land. They liked them being gone. Um, and now here are the Jews back in the land. And so they start persecuting them. And in light of that, they stopped building the temple. And then God sent two prophets to come and to wake them up. Does anybody know who those two prophets were? They're post-exilic prophets. They're after the exile. Zechariah is one of them. He's the encouraging one. And then Haggai. He's short but punchy. Um, so, so Haggai and Zechariah come and they, they rebuke and encourage the people in the work to get back at it. Build the temple. Don't, don't, yeah, don't, don't listen to these, these persecutors, but rather get back to the work that God has called you to do. And they indeed did that. And in 515, they completed the temple and it was dedicated. You can read about that in Ezra chapter uh, 6. Well, Ezra then led the second wave of a few thousand Jewish exiles back to Jerusalem. This was in around the year 458. You can read about that in Ezra chapter 7 through 10. Um, so Ezra kind of chronicles a lot of, of this time. Nehemiah then brought back a third wave, and he came back, and he oversaw the building of what? The wall, right? So you had the temple built, and now that the temple's built, we need to protect the city, so we're going to build the wall. And you can read about that, of course, in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, that took place around the year 445 B.C. All right, so this is, we've been uh, back, we've had not quite a hundred years since King Cyrus has said, okay, go back. Uh, to where the temple's built and the wall is built and the Jews are back in, in the land. Now, what should have happened among the people of Israel? They come back, they're finally out of exile, right? They're out of this oppression of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Uh, they've gotten this wonderful uh, grace of God for the Persians to let them go back home and to even fund some of the, the building of their city, right? I mean, they, they get to be back in the land, worshiping God with the temple, with the sacrifices. What should their posture of their heart be? Yeah, it should be filled with such joy and thankfulness. It should be vibrant worship. They should be obeying the law and loving the law and desiring God. But sadly, that's not what happened. Certainly there was some vibrant worship initially, but eventually the people's hearts grew cold. The exile, in one sense, changed a lot because what got Israel into uh, the exile? What was their sin? Primarily idolatry. <laughs> you don't see them struggling much with idolatry after this. 
it's just not, the exile, is, at least initially, really kind of blew that up. We're going to see it mentioned once in chapter, chapter 2, but they really didn't have quite a taste for idols. But they did have another sin that they fell into, one that sadly has been typical uh, for their history. It's called apathetic religion, hypocrisy, dead religious ritualism, where they fell into the going through the motions of, okay, we got, this, we got the temple, we got sacrifices now, we got to do some prayers, and do you give some money, we're going to do our thing, and we're just going to fall into this empty, dead religion that's not aimed at worshiping God for being who he is, rightly, the great God who is to be praised, but rather, he's, he's God, and yeah, he's there, but we can kind of do whatever we want and start to be lax in what God commands, uh, begin to edit his requirements, begin to ignore him, and have an apathetic, dead religious life. I don't know about you, but I, I grew up around a lot of that. Um, and I remember as a non-Christian just thinking, this is miserable. Like, do you all have something better to do on a Sunday morning than to just come here and be like, we love God. Is this over yet? Like, you know, I mean, like that kind of posture is just not, it's not what the Lord deserves, right? Well, the nation of Israel had fallen back had fallen into that. So God was burdened by their sin. So he burdened a prophet named Malachi. This is around, I'm going to say around the year 430. It's, it's unclear exactly how, how exactly when he wrote, um, how long after the, the temple had been rebuilt and all of this. Um, so I would even edit what I said on that, that sheet there. I'd say it's closer to the early part of that 4, 420. Um, Time. Some say 4.15, so let's say 4.15 to 4.30, somewhere in there, um, is, is likely the time the Lord burdens this prophet Malachi, and he comes and he delivers six uh, oracles to the nation. And the, in these four chapters that we see here, they are just peppered with questions. 23 questions God is asking Israel that's intending to expose their sinful actions and attitudes toward God and move them to repentance. And Israel is going to re respond with seven questions for God. So God's going to be asking them questions and they're going to be like, oh yeah, well when did we do that? Um, so that interaction is going to guide the way that we are approaching the, the book. So these um, basically, we're going to see God's going to make a claim, and then that's going to be followed up by Israel's question. God's going to say, you do this, and they're going to be like, how do we do that? And then God's going to say, let me tell you how you do that. So God's claim, Israel's question, and then God's response. That pattern is going to mark uh, the conversation that goes through these six uh, oracles that are delivered here by the prophet Malachi. All right? Let's go ahead and do verse 1, and then before we uh, press into the oracle itself, um, we will see if you have any questions just about some of that uh, opening uh, information there. So again, verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord by, uh, uh, to Israel by Malachi. The word oracle here, it, it, means, it means burden. It, 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 it's, a, it's, a, it's a proclaimed word that is uh, moved because you are burdened by something. So right out of the gate, when it says the oracle of the word of the Lord, 
this is going to strike a somber tone. This is going to be filled with some strong reproofs. And also notice here that this is the word of the Lord. This message originates with God Almighty, so it carries authority. It's true, it's weighty, and it's, it's burdening God. And he burdens here Malachi because the people are ensnared in sin. Also here, the, the name that is used for, for God. So the word of the Lord, you'll notice it's in all caps there. Um, that is, uh, yeah, we would translate that Yahweh. So this is the name that is associated particularly with something about God. Anybody know what that means? Whenever you see this all caps, L-O-R-D, he's using Yahweh, which is, it's his covenant name. It's the name that God uses when he wants them to remember that he's the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. So a covenant is simply a promise uh, from God about how he intends to relate to his people and what he expects from, from them. So God is here... Uh, burdened because he sees them wrongly relating to him through the covenant that he made with them. He's been faithful, but they have not. And God is grieved by it, and he then delivers this message. And he delivers it to Israel. So it's delivered here to the entire nation of Israel who had been restored to the land following the 70 years of exile in Babylon. So the nation is back here. Um, and it would have been a, a mixture of, of the tribes. They would have come here, and um, God is speaking to the entire nation. That being said, um, you are going to see that he's going to address the priests specifically throughout the book because the priests are responsible as the leadership for overseeing the spiritual health of the nation, and they've gone sideways. So he's given it to the whole nation, but he's going to be given it specifically to the priests along the way. Now, this community of, of the Israelites who are there, there's about uh, 150,000 Jews at this time back in the land. So that's through all the wave who've come back, and then they've had children. So uh, about 150,000 uh, people back in the land. The Persians were allowing Israel to worship their God uh, as long as they didn't rebel against the king. Now, one of the things just uh, that's interesting for you, these, um, what you might call the minor prophets, so not uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and, and Daniel, right? But beginning right after, uh, after Daniel, you have what's often called the, the minor prophets. The first of those is Hosea. Runs from Hosea all the way to, to Malachi. These are thought to be ordered um, in chronological order. So um, Malachi is your last one. He is the final prophet to the nation. He's the final Old Testament prophet until John the Baptist comes on the scene. So John the Baptist is technically your final Old Testament prophet who's going to be foretold in this very book. But Malachi is the last word to the people of Israel before God is going to sign off for some 400 years of silence. And then that silence will be broken by, um, by the birth of, of John the Baptist, okay? Um, so the issues that Malachi is addressing here are regarding the temple worship. And um, basically, 
He is looking at what the people are doing, and it is grieving him. He sees them bringing these corrupted sacrifices, and God points it out to him and says, go. Now, if you want to read more about uh, a lot of the things that the people were struggling with, uh, in, the day, in, in both uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, you're going to see several uh, reoccurring sin issues that show up here in the book of, of Malachi as well. So there's a corrupted priesthood. You see that in Nehemiah 13 and, and Malachi 1. Uh, there's going to be m- uh, marriage to idolaters. That was an issue you both saw in, in Ezra and uh, in Nehemiah's day and also in uh, Malachi. Uh, there's uh, abuse of the less fortunate, so oppression. See that in Nehemiah 5 and here in Malachi. And then the withholding of tithes from the Lord. That shows up in Nehemiah and also here in in Malachi. So these are several of the issues that plague the nation. And um, all of those and more will be addressed here by by the prophet. And then finally here we have, um, this is by Malachi. Anybody know what Malachi means? Or if you're Italian, Malachi. Malachi means my messenger. My messenger. So some people wonder, well, is this just his title or is this his name? We're just going to go with yes. Um, so it's probably his name and his, it's, it's his office here. It's what he's, what he's doing. He's bringing this messenger. He is the third and final post-exilic prophet, right? So he's the final one until John the Baptist comes. So I think the only other thing we'd want to point out here uh, in the introduction is uh, the name that God uses for himself all the way through here, so certainly the Lord, but it's, he's gonna, you're going to see the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is going to show up throughout this book. He's going to refer to himself in that way. What does that mean for, for God to be the Lord of hosts? Yes, he's the God of, of, of armies. He is the warrior God who fights on behalf of his people, often with his angels coming uh, to assist him in that, in that warring. So this should either bring great comfort to God's people because God is the warrior God who is for them, or it should sober his people because he is coming in judgment against them. And you're going to see both of those are at play in this book depending on who he's, who he's talking to. All right. So that's, that's kind of the opening introduction about uh, who this is, who he's speaking to, what's going on in the day. Anybody have any questions about that before we dive into the, the first oracle here? Who has the microphones, by the way? Got one there. So have one question here, please. Remember, just tell us your name and then your question. Uh, my name's Amory. So in the Hebrew, when, he, when God refers to himself as the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies, is that different from the word Yahweh? He would be the Yahweh of armies. Yeah, so, yep, mm-hmm. yep, so good. So he's a covenant-keeping God who's enforcing either the protection of his covenant people or the punishment of his covenant people, but it's all going to be related. All of his dealings are going to be based upon his covenants that he made with Abraham and then he made with Moses and he made with David. So, great question. Okay. Stepping back, um, when did they start referring to themselves as Jews? Because not everybody was from the tribe of Judah. You might have Benjamites and all that, Levites, but when did that all kind of evolve? 
that's a great Bible trivia question that I am not sure. I actually read that. I remember reading that last year and be like, oh, that's interesting. I should remember that. And I don't remember. Um, so good question. Um, if you email me, I could try to dig that up. Great question. All right, on to, you have a final question right here, just on uh, some of the opening uh, introduction stuff. Hi, my name's Dennis. Um, quick question as a part of the context here. So about 100 years or so between the last minor prophet and, and Malachi in terms of chronological order there, um, can you speak a little bit to what may have drove these post-exilic Israelites to the, the place of, of apathy? What were some of the conditions? You know, was it fear that drove them? Was there, was there other threatened persecutions? Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a great question. So what, what cultivated this attitude of apathy among the, among the people? Um, there was constant pressure by their neighbors to, to be, you know, keep it quiet over there about your God. Um, that was always going on, right? Um, I think it's just what happens when a heart is not guarded, and when the leadership begins to get corrupted, they're going to just, it's just going to fade slowly over time. And that's why God's going to come so hard at the priest, because he's like, it's your job to make sure that you remain vibrant and um, devoted to me, because you are supposed to watch over the people. He's going to say, I wish there was one priest who'd stand up and do something. So I think as the leadership goes, so go the people oftentimes, and it's, they're certainly going to bear the brunt of much of the rebuke, uh, but I think, yeah, this is just, I, they just began to get cold and cold-hearted, and this is why God gives words like this for us to read so our hearts would be stoked so that we would avoid the same sort of temptation, so it's good, yeah. And I think any of us who've walked with the Lord for any period of time know what that's like, for there to be periods of like, I don't think I've prayed in a while. Or I just, I'm opening the Bible, but it's just not. It's, and you just feel cold and dry. And it, it takes faith-filled energy and effort to pursue the Lord and to ask. And that's why he sends this, this word through Malachi to, to spark it. So, great. All right, well, let's dive in here to the, the first of uh, seven um, messages, uh, at least the way we're, we're breaking it down. Oracle number one, burden number one, God's love has been denied God's love has been denied by the people. They're acting as if God doesn't love them and that he has never loved them. This is chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. Verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Well, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So this is his first word to them. There in verse 2, you see God's claim, I have loved you, says the Lord. This is, again, not a general statement about God's love uh, for all people. He's speaking specifically here about his covenantal love with Israel. 
Israel has long been the object of his affection. He created Israel by calling Abraham out and miraculously giving uh, Sarah uh, Isaac in her womb. He made a covenant with them. He grew them. He delivered them through the Exodus. He provided for them on Mount Sinai and manna, and he's cared for them. He's entrusted them with uh, so much with his promises and prophecies about the Messiah who is to come. God has been nothing but loving to them. His steadfast love endures forever. They've got psalms about it. This is, this is the, the way that they should think about God because God has done nothing but love them. God has spoke of his love to them. Hosea 11.3, I took them up by their arms. I led them with cords of kindness. With the bands of love, I bent down to them and fed them. Isaiah 43, 4, you are precious in my eyes and honored. I love you, says the Lord. Deuteronomy 10, 15, the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. He says, I've loved you. And God's declaration of love here in the, in the original language is in the perfect tense, which highlights that God's love for them is this complete, total love. It's unchanging. It's enduring. This, when you think about how God has related to them, chiefly you should think God loves us. He loves his people. But they answer back, but you say, how have you loved us? kind of like an unappreciative child, right? Israel just puffs up with ungratefulness. What have you done for me lately? How have you loved me? What have you ever done for me? We don't see any evidences of your love. Now, what they might be pointing to is the fact that things weren't going for well for them right now at this time. Their crops weren't growing well. Rain wasn't coming as well. Um, a lot of things were, were not going well for them. Trade wasn't going well. They were struggling as a nation. And so what they're doing is they're looking at all of their circumstances, and they say, hey, my circumstances sure don't make it look like you love us, right? They had grown suspicious of God. And again, they had oppressive neighbors and rulers but for them, the reason that things were this way wasn't because God wasn't loving them. For them, because they were under, again, the Mosaic Covenant, and God had promised to relate to them according to their obedience, because they were apathetic and disobedient from the heart, God had begun to withdraw his covenant blessings. He didn't just shut it off, but he had begun to withdraw it a bit as an act of discipline to show them, hey, Things are off, but rather than they saying, well, it must have been us who moved and not God, they look to God and they're like, you don't love us. Well, the Lord disciplines those that he, he loves, but they don't, they don't comprehend that here. So God's response to them is he goes historical on them. He says, let's go, let's go back. Let's rewind to some distinct times that I've loved you, one in particular. He says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have 
I have hated. So what God does is he, he reminds the nation of, uh, of the twin sons of Isaac to highlight his electing, selecting, predestining love for them. He takes them back to Genesis 25 where Isaac and Rebekah had conceived and the children were struggling in the womb. And in 25, 23, the Lord said to Rebekah, two nations are in your womb, two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. She gave birth uh, and there were twins in her womb. The first, they called him Esau and afterward his brother came out and he was called Jacob. So God uses this uh, literary polarization and says, I, I chose to pass over Esau and I chose to place the blessing on Jacob. And it's not based on anything that they did because when did he choose this? We're in the womb, right? This Paul uh, in Romans chapter 9 highlights this when he talks about the issue of uh, or, or the, the, the teaching about God's electing, selecting love for his people. He uses this as one of the illustrations. God's love was shown to Israel by choosing to bless Jacob and his descendants. God says, I saved you, though you were unworthy of it. I have loved you. So rather than asking, how have you loved us? They should be asking what? Why have you loved us? We haven't done anything to earn or deserve your mercy. The very fact that you are our God and that you have told us who you are by your law and that now you're sending a, a prophet, as you send many other prophets before, and that you've provided for us all the time. All you do is love us. But that's not what they're, they're saying here. Now, just by way of note, God's uh, predestining of his people, which we see highlighted here, is an act of love and not something to scoff at. I find it interesting here that they say, how have you loved us? And he, he answers them with the, uh, the, the doctrine of, of election as testimony of love, which sometimes in Christian circles even becomes something that people get frustrated about and be like, that's not love. And the Lord's like, I, actually, I think it is love. <laughs> and, and God sets it forth as an example of that. And, and think about Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. The setting apart of people for himself is an act of God's, God's love. Now these Hebrew words for love and hate don't really refer to God's emotions so much, but his choice to pass over one and his choice to uh, place his covenant blessings on another. He didn't choose Esau to put the blessing upon, but he did choose uh, Jacob. We can talk more about that if you have questions about it. But here in verse 3, uh, God points now to the way that he has dealt with Esau and their descendants. Now, who are the descendants of Esau? Yeah, the Edomites, right? Um, he, he points to the way that he has dealt with them. He says, I have laid uh, waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. The Edomites, they lived in, in the wilderness uh, east of, of Jerusalem. And they, again, were long enemies of, of Israel. 
But they did a particular evil thing during the days of Babylon carrying Israel off to captivity. The the Edomites not only stood back and watched as the Babylonians raped and maimed and carved up their blood brothers and sisters, but like vultures, they moved in to pluck what they could from the corpses. So they, they did an evil thing, and God saw it all. Actually, there's a whole book of the Bible that's written about what God's going to do to them for doing that very evil. Anybody know what book that is? Old Testament minor prophet, very short. Obadiah. The prophet Obadiah was written to reprove the Edomites for their pride and to assure them of certain destruction because of this very evil that they did, that they stood back and they celebrated the demise of their, of their brother. And then they capitalized on it. And God did judge them for their, their evil. Um, several groups, including Romans and some other tribes, came and, and came upon the, the Edomites and, and devastated them. Um, and their, yeah, their, their homeland was left for, he, for scavengers. You notice here he mentions these jackals, right? It's the wild animals just come in because the people aren't there anymore. So God answers a possible objection there in verse 4. He says, if if Edom says, uh, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may may rebuild, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. He says, if they try and rebuild this city, I'm going to knock it down again. Did it once, I'll do it again. What he's doing here is he's highlighting that his judgment eternally rests upon Esau because of the wickedness that he has, he has done, just as his love eternally rests upon Jacob. And he says here in verse 5, your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. You see, they say, how have you loved us? And God says, the way I've loved you is I've brought justice against your enemies. They've done wicked to you, and I saw it. I saw what they did to you. I had covenant love with you. And they set themselves against you. And I judged them. You see, God will be honored and praised and magnified here for repaying evildoers for their sin. And and this act of God to bring justice is going to bring praise for the Lord in Israel and beyond its borders. Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is, again, foreshadowing his intent to bless the nations through what he does with Israel. This is always God's intent. Through you, the nations will be blessed. Well, if you oppose him, though, you will be struck down. But God's name will be made known in such a way that people from the nations will hear and see and believe and and flee to him. So I'm sure when we get to glory, (laughs) there will be people uh, that God used the destruction of the Edomites uh, and maybe the recording of it in the book of Obadiah uh, to draw them to faith. God will make his name great among, among the nations. Now, this idea of praising God here even for his uh, justice and seeing that that's a right reason to, to praise him, 
might be something that we, we could feel uncomfortable with. But again, I think that part of that is because we, have a, we tend to have a, a low view of sin and a low view of God. When we see God for who he is and see sin for what it is in his holy presence, we will celebrate and praise God for his justice. You see this in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 19 begins with heaven celebrating the destruction of Babylon, that it fell in Revelation chapter 18. You get, it goes from the live feed of, of Babylon being destroyed to then the scene in heaven, and the angels and the redeemed rejoice and praise God because he finally brought justice on the persecutors and evildoers of the world. Again, I think that when we are in the presence of God, this will be something that will, will make much more sense to us. But I also think that if, yeah, if you've been an oppressed person, I think you understand a little bit more about why justice and God's justice is such a sweet and hopeful thing. If, if you have been under the hand of an enemy who has sought to hurt you and, and abuse you, there is, there is desire for somebody to make this right. Well, God looks to Israel who says, how have you loved us? And he says, I've loved you by extending justice against your, your enemies. And what they should understand is that if God were fair, he would have done it to them too. That rather than giving them love, he would have given them justice because that's really what they deserve just as much as the Edomites. But God in his mercy chose to extend mercy so that they might know him. I guess just one question that I found helpful on, on this first oracle is, is wondering, how have you been tempted, as Israel was here, to, to think that God, God might be good, but he's, he's not, is he good to you? Does he really love you? What is it that maybe tempts you toward wondering that? I would encourage you to, to search your heart and see if there are things that tempt you to wonder about God's love for you, to maybe doubt it, and to press in on that. Let that be something that you, you talk about openly. So sometimes that can feel really shameful, um, and I just encourage you to not, be, not give in to that temptation of, of being ashamed of, of, of wondering that, but rather to bring it into the light with a trusted brother or sister, and let's walk this thing out. Uh, let's, let's read, let's study, let's press in, and, and let's, let's, let's talk about it with the Lord. So just want you to know this is the sort of church where we, we want to wrestle with those kinds of things, not heap more shame on, on you for, for feeling that way. Um, and I think what we'll see is that the chief example of his love is, is the giving of his son, Jesus, right? That he receives the justice that we deserve so that we can receive mercy and that we can receive the life that he deserved. So all of this in one sense points us to, to Christ. How about I pause here for a moment and see if you have any questions about this first oracle um, of, of God's love being denied here by, by the nation. Anybody have any questions about this, this first word that he brings to them? Again, just remind us of your name and then give us your question. Thanks. I'm Alex. Um, what would you recommend as like 
a healthy way to wrestle with the like just hard reality of election and like the God using the Edomites to like I don't know God judging them for something that they did but that was also part of his plan and like him judging Babylon but using Babylon to judge Israel like all of those things that ultimately we can't fully understand but like feel scary to press into like what's a healthy way to like yep just yeah explore that great question how should we wrestle with that so first thing I would want to uh make clear is that the Though God uh, allowed Babylon to come against the Israel, against Judah and take them away, he did not give permission for the Edomites to do that. So the very fact that they jumped in on that was an evil thing. So what Babylon did to them was an evil thing that God used as part of his, his purpose. He knew exactly what they were going to do, so he released uh, them to have freedom to, to come and to take them away. So God, yeah, uses their evil to accomplish his good purposes. In the same way that Joseph speaks about that at the end of his life, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. So God uses that and in a way that only, only God can. Back to you, I think the heart of your question, though, is how do we wrestle with that? I'm not sure if you've studied the book of Habakkuk recently. Um, it, is, it is dealing with that issue. The prophet Habakkuk is confused about the injustice in the world, and then he's confused about how God's dealing with it um, in, re- in relation to, to the Babylonians. So um, I encourage you to do some study in the book of, of Habakkuk um, and to see how, how, how God addresses it to the prophet. Because it, like Habakkuk, like Jonah, is unique in that it, you've got a prophet wrestling, speaking with God about something that he, he doesn't get or like. Um, and that's the very core of, of, that, uh, of that issue. Um, and then I think what I would, I would always kind of go back to the, to the cross and look at, okay, if, if God can use the greatest evil in the history of the world, the torturing to death of the Son of God by the hands of people he came to save, that's the most heinous, grievous thing, greatest injustice that's ever occurred. If he can use that for the greatest good in the history of the world, the glory of God made known because of his mercy extended to sinners that we get to enjoy. If God can use that evil for good, then we can trust him with whatever other sorts of injustices and evils come because we know that he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That doesn't mean all things are good because all things are not good. But there is a God who is sovereign over all things who will use all things, both good and bad, to fulfill perfect purposes. And, and this is part of what life is. It's trusting him when all of that doesn't make sense. That's why we walk by faith and not by sight. And the faith is pleasing to God because it puts on display before everybody around us, to ourselves, to everybody around us, to the world, to the angels, to the demons, that God is worthy to be trusted even when we can't fully comprehend what he's doing. And then he does miraculous things throughout history to prove that he is worthy of trust. The chief of those, of course, is the giving of his son. So that grid for me helps me to navigate. There's certainly times that questions are raised and um, uncertain, but that's a bit of a framework. I do encourage you to start with the book of Habakkuk. We did a boot camp on that, and if you want to listen to just some of the, the teaching on it for background. I know also the women's Bible study on Thursday night has been going through it and um, 
Carrie, my wife, has a, a good a little devotional that, that can help you walk through it. So, great question. Any other questions about the first oracle here? All right, on to the second one then. This is a long one. It goes from 1-6 all the way to 2-9. Um, so we'll work through this one. We'll take questions, and then we'll take our, our, our first break. The second oracle now. So the first one, we saw God's love was denied. Here, we're going to see that God's, uh, God's honor is despised. And as, as we work through, what we're going to see is that there is um, disrespectful service toward the Lord. There are displeasing sacrifices that are being offered up. There are disheartening attitudes that are had, and there are dishonoring priests that are going to be reproved. All of these, in one sense, are, you're going to see it's going to kind of like build up, and it's going to be the fault of the priests, um, because the priests should be overseeing the heart of the nation and making sure that God is honored. But rather than God honor, being honored, His honor is being despised, and God, He addresses them straight on about it. Let's look here at first in verses 6 and 7 about this disrespectful service. Verse 6, this is God's claim. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. So the Lord here accuses the priests in particular of despising his name. Uh, to despise his name, it means to, to treat it uh, lightly, um, yeah, to treat it with contempt. It's a, a cousin, if you will, of treating his name in vain. So this would be the same sort of thing, to treat it lightly or with empty it of meaning. Same sort of thing here, except this is more with a kind of nose raised and, and dislike sort of thing rather than just flippant. Um, so they were these priests were despising God's name with the way that they and the nation that they oversaw were worshiping God. Now, Israel, of course, has a question about this in verse 6. But you say, how have we despised your name? Ah, this is news to us. We can't imagine such a thing, right? Um, well, verse 7, God's response. By offering polluted food upon my altar, you are bringing sacrifices and food to my altar that is unclean. This is how you're despising my name. And Israel's question, but you say, how have we polluted you? What in the world are you talking about, God? We don't see this. So you'll notice here, even the way that God is framing their response to him is a defensive posture of, there's nothing wrong with us. It must be with you, God. Aren't you really the problem? <laughs> you must be seeing something because we're not seeing it. Well, God's response to them again in verse 7, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. What he means by that is that the Lord is accusing them, particularly the priests here, of despising his, his table by allowing sacrifices that are unclean, unhealthy, unacceptable, rather than bringing God uh, their best Rather than doing that, they turn to the landfill and they're like, what's the most worthless thing that we could bring in for the offering? But that's not what they're supposed to do. And, and, and their attitude of, um, okay, we got some spare change we could take and give to the Lord. 
That kind of attitude is, it's dishonoring to him. It's disrespectful sort of service that they have, treating him, him lightly. Well, this disrespectful service is seen in their displeasing sacrifices, which he's, he's begun to speak about here. Which, by the way, when he talks about his table, the reason that he's using that language for the altar is the way that the sacrifices were set up. And we, whenever we um, preached through the book of Leviticus, we, we covered this uh, several times, and I found it really rich. That basically, the people are sinners, and God knows this, and he loves them. So he's given the law which shows their sin, but then he's given a sacrificial system which is intended to provide um, opportunity for atonement, for mercy, for their sins to be covered. So they have varying sacrifices that they bring to the Lord. Um, and they bring these, and uh, oftentimes if you, have a, if you have a burnt offering that you're bringing for some sort of sin, you would bring it to the priest, and you're supposed to bring the best thing that you've got, and then you bring it to the priest, and then what the priest would do is the priest would, um, would slaughter it, and then he would prepare it, and then he would take it, and he would put it on the grill. And it turns into a barbecue. And basically, the priest will um, cook the meat, and he will take a portion and eat it, and then he will give the rest of it to the people, and they will eat it as a picture of you bringing the sacrifice to the Lord and trusting by faith in bringing this that God is going to extend mercy to you because this is what he has prescribed. You can have your fellowship with the Lord restored because a meal is how you have fellowship. So the priest symbolically is eating on behalf of the Lord and the people are eating in this meal and they're sharing together as a picture of the Lord has accepted your sacrifice. The Lord loves you. The, your fellowship with him is restored. That's the picture that's cultivated. So the sacrifices is just one big, it's, it's one big barbecue the whole time, um, which is, I mean, it's pretty amazing. This picture of fellowship that God wants here. That's not all that it is, but that's part of what was happening. So when he talks about his table here, this is, is likely what is, what is in view. Well, they're bringing displeasing sacrifices. Verse 8, so they say, uh, when my table is despised, uh, how are we doing that? Verse 8, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? So God commanded Israel to bring the best of their flock to be the, the sacrifice. But instead, they bring Lucky, the one-eyed, three-legged goat. You know, like he's made it thus far, but we're kind of done with Lucky. Let's bring him in. They, they bring him this lame animal, which is not what the Lord prescribed. Listen to this from Deuteronomy 15. If it, the offering, has any blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish what, uh, whatsoever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. God was super clear about this in the law. You don't bring these sorts of, um, of animals. So what Israel had begun to do was because their estimation of God had decreased. They didn't take him as seriously. They would read commands and be like, okay, maybe, but, you know, does he really care? Is he even watching, right? And, and their view of him had been lowered so much that their religious offerings began to just become this, this hollow act where they, rather than bringing their best as a highlight of the, the seriousness of what was happening 
and how worthy God is to be honored, they began to bring him the leftovers, the worst of what they had. And God says, this is displeasing. And God helps him with a, an illustration, verse 8. He says, um, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show favor, says the Lord of hosts. He says, next time that the, uh, the governor invites you over to his house and you're going to bring something for the barbecue, why don't you drag Lucky over there? Be like, hey, look what I brought for you. <laughs> oh, thanks. Is that going to commend you to him? And that's a mere man. Verse 9, now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Now, one of the things to notice about their, these, uh, how their, their uh, worship is off and what they're offering to the Lord. Here in, in verse 8, they were giving insufficient quality. It was blemished. Later on in chapter 3, we're going to see that they were giving insufficient quantity. Their, their tithing was, well, it was emptied. Uh, they, were, they, they, they weren't giving the right quality or quantity to the Lord. Everything had kind of uh, devolved into just the bare minimum to be religious. And that is not what God's after. Right? Now in verse 10, he calls, this is a call for courage. Oh, that there were one among you who had shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. God calls out and says, I wish there was one priest who had some guts. I wish there was one priest who had some courage that when you see these people bringing all these lame offerings, that you would shut the door to the temple and say, you're not bringing that in here. That's, that's not, that is not honor the Lord. No. He says, I wish there was one among you that had some courage to stand up to represent me as I ought to be represented. Their job was to stop unblemished sacrifices. And again, you've got to understand that this is not just about God trying to, to keep people doing the right things. Their heart had to be in it. He wants their heart. And if, if, if the priests let the people get away with half-hearted religion, that's not good for the people. It's not like God doesn't need their stuff. He wants them. He wants their heart. And he says, I wish one of the priests had my heart that love the people like I love them. Because what you're doing for them, it may seem like love because you're letting them kind of get away with this, but it's not loving to them. It's quenching their love for me. It's, it's allowing this, this, this passivity toward me, this apathy toward me to be cultivated. That's not love. It's not loving to just let people do what they want and just to say, hey, you can kind of worship God however you want. Because God is holy and good and right and true, and he desires and deserves to be worshipped in a particular way. So he's reproving these priests for being cowardly. He says, I'd rather you just shut the door. I'd rather have no religion than dead religion. Shut, the, shut it down, please. 
He's not just out for dead things burning on a grill. He wants the people to come in faith, feeling the weight of their sin, and equally feeling the hope of the mercy that God extends, and to come in faith and to offer what God requires, knowing that this God's requirements are not rooted in just getting you to do the right thing, but it's rooted in extending from your heart, pulling out from your heart that which is most important, that God is chiefly to be honored. And all of this is to honor Him rightly, verse 11, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord. They may not be faithful, but God will always be glorious. And he will always be worthy of praise. From sun up to sun down, his name should be and will be honored. He is here ensuring that his people will not treat his name with this half-heartedness and to have this dead religion. Which, by the way, this again, I think, highlights the aim of all of our religion. So, as much as we would say, you know, well, we're not religious people, we're totally religious people. You're in a Bible study on Saturday morning, right? Um, this is what religious people do. So, religion in and of itself is not bad. I know there's a, you know, big movement that, no, I'm in a relationship with God, not religion. Well, you're religious people who are in a relationship with God. It's, it's, it's okay. God prescribes there is good religion. And what religion is, it is, it is systems and disciplines that we do that orient our heart toward God. So, so when you read the Bible, you don't read it to check off the list. When you pray, you don't do it so you don't feel guilty. That becomes the, we talk about the, the, the God of the box, where you're just checking off your box of doing, I'm discipling the right number of people, I'm giving away the right amount of money, I'm showing up at the right time in the right place, wearing the right stuff, I'm you know, not watching this, I'm doing that, and you just got the God of the box. And it's this, but it's not about Him. Religion, good religion, is, are disciplines that God prescribes that it's intended to orient our heart toward Him so that when we open the Bible, we say, Lord, help me to read this to hear from You. Help me to read so I know You. Show me things that I don't believe rightly. Expose me. Transform me. Give me You. Same thing when we sing. That we're not just like, all right, let's do another song, and this is not really my favorite song. But like, we're like, okay, there's a song this is about the Lord. Help me to hear these truths. Help me to sing it to you, Lord. And, and if this is not my favorite song, well, Lord, I know you love other people and other people here. This is their jam, so help me to sing to help them to sing. And, and it's all about Him. They had forgotten that. Despite all that God had done for them, they had fallen into this dead, half-hearted, religious um, ritualism. And God says, that I'm, I'm worthy of better than, than that. They also have this disheartening attitude here in verse 12. God's claim to them is, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. He says, when you, when you roll your eyes at what I require, you dishonor me. And Israel's question, of course, in verse 13, but you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. So it's not really a question, it's more of a statement. Basically, they're They've grown weary with God. They snort at it. Right? You see, their, their blessings and all that God has done for them has blinded them. And they've grown tired of worshiping Him. 
They see it as an empty, meaningless thing. They'd rather just go golfing or go shopping or just sleep in or do whatever because that's a lot better than, than the Lord, right? Their hearts have just grown cold toward him. Well, God's response to them in verse 13, you bring what, was, what has been taken by violence, so through corruption, um, oppression, or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. My name will be feared among the nations. He says, I see you when the priest comes by and says, are you bringing an offering to the Lord this week? Yes, I am. In the Lord's name, I've got, you know, Billy the best goat right here. He, look at him. He's great. I vow it to the Lord. But then when it's time to go to the, the temple, you're like, you know, Billy, he is a great goat. Why don't we take Jimmy, the less goat, and we take him? The Lord says, I see that, and you're cheating me. You vowed to me what you're going to give, and then you, you change your heart because you're fickle. Which, again, these, these systems of vows and things are not things that we do anymore under the new covenant in the same way. Um, but it, it, it exposes the same sort of attitudes that can grow in us, where we intend to do something for the Lord and then we just, our hearts grow cold and we don't, we don't obey him or follow through because he's grown little in our estimation. Now, one question you, you might wonder, God says it twice here, verse 11 and again verse 13. He, he highlights, I am a great king. My name will be great among the nations. Some have accused God of being arrogant because of this. They're like, well, that's, that's awfully prideful. Um, for God to say, I'm a great king? Well, uh, I would simply say, but it's true. And it's actually good of God for him to represent himself to us rightly. So it would not be humble, like for Michael Jordan to say, I'm not really that good of a basketball player. Like, that's just not true. Well, if the Lord were like, I'm an okay God, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good one, and most people should like me, like that would be untrue. He says what's true here, I am a great God. And what we've got to understand, it's actually our understanding of that, our belief in that, our orienting our entire lives around the fact that he is great and should be praised, that is actually what unlocks our greatest joy. Our joy is rooted in knowing him as he is. It's in knowing him as being the God who is great and glorious and us orienting our lives to where everything that we think, do, and say is about pleasing him and helping others to see him that, that true joy is found. Obedience, Jesus says, by obeying his commands, do this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made complete. We obey him because he's great and good and worthy. And it's through that the true joy and peace is known. So it's actually in knowing God's greatness that gives us the greatest hope and joy and peace. This is what liberates us. So it would be unloving of God for him to misrepresent himself as not being great. But he is great and that is what makes all of this so 
sad when we see the way that the nation is responding. He's going to keep going in on the priests here in 2, 1 through 9. We'll finish this, and then we'll, we'll take some questions. We see here now these dishonoring priests, which again, he's been talking to throughout this whole time, but he's really going to go in on them here. Verse 1, and now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring. It may be, so it's either offspring, as in their, their children, or the word seed here, meaning their crops. And you could make a case for either one, that he's going to curse their crops, which is part of the, uh, the, the curse of the, the Mosaic covenant when you don't obey, or it could mean their offspring, which would be the same thing, uh, meaning it's, it's part of the, the, the cursing of the Mosaic covenant as well. But either way, he's going to rebuke them and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offering, and you shall be taken away with it. Wow. What is the Lord saying there? Well, he's saying exactly what he said. So whenever you would sacrifice an offering, the dung was all of the inner uncleanness of the animal, including all that. And what you would do as a priest is you clean that out and you take it outside the camp, right? It's, it's, it's going to be outside because it's unclean. Well, basically, the Lord is using a pretty graphic word picture here where he's like, you come to me and say, Lord, here's your offering. But because of the way you're doing it with your total disregard to my word and to the fact that I am a God who's worthy to be praised, you're just coming through and like, hey, God, here's your thing. He says, I'm going to take that which is unclean and I'm going to smear it on your face so that you're going to see this is how I see what you're doing right now. You're coming to me as one who is unclean. You're offering up things that are unclean. The prophet Isaiah would say that your, your prayers, your, your offerings make me sick. God's like, this is, this is not pleasing. The way that you are doing this with this empty, dead, half-hearted, edited religion. They're unclean. Which, by the way, if they're unclean, so are the people. This is corrupting the whole nation because the leadership has gone sideways. Well, verse 4, So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. What he's doing here is he's taking them back to the beginning. He's going back to the original covenant that God made with Levi, Exodus chapter 32, where God set the Levites apart as his, to be his very own priests. He says, they feared me. They understood. They saw the glory of me on the holy mountain, and they knew that they should tremble before me. He says, you've lost that. And he teaches them here, verse 6, true instruction was in his mouth. And no wrong was found on his lips. He knew truth and he spoke truth. He didn't edit it like you guys are doing. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. He lived the truth. He didn't just peddle unapplied truth and say, hey, this is what you should do and then go off and be a hypocrite. He turned many away from iniquity. He not only 
heard the truth and spoke the truth and lived the truth, but he helped others to live the truth. Verse 7, for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and should speak instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. A priest should, should guard the truth of God's word and not allow it to be uh, uh, undermined or dismissed. He serves as God's messenger. Verse 8, what's the first word there in chapter 2 of verse 8? But. He's contrasting him now. But you have turned aside from the way. That's how it's supposed to be with the priests. Truth hearing, truth speaking, truth living, truth imparting to others. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. Now, I know this book feels very heavy. The reason that it's so heavy is that what's at stake here is people's souls. It's their view of God. It's their relationship with Him. And these priests, because of their apathy and compromise, are leading people astray. There is, when you, when you look through the Bible, there's nothing that seems to make God angrier than religious leaders who misrepresent him. I mean, when you, you think about Jesus, when he came on the scene, he was so tender, so gentle, so patient, so compassionate towards sinners who knew they were sinners. But he was vicious, righteously vicious in his words and his actions toward the religious system of the day that was this exact same thing on steroids, who were leading people astray by their reworking of the whole religion. Jesus said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. He says, you've caused many to stumble by your instruction. Verse 8, you have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Obviously a heavy, hard word here for the priests. What it's supposed to make you do is say, can we just have a good priest? Can we just have a priest who loves God? Can we just have a priest who loves the law? Can we just have a priest who would go into the temple and shut it down? If there's corrupt things happening. Can we have somebody flip some tables, please? Can we, can we have somebody who's going to come in and call out these corrupt religious leaders who's telling everybody lies about God? Can we just have somebody, can we have a priest who's going to have some courage to represent God? Can we have a priest who's going to come and offer up a right sacrifice on behalf of the people so they can have hope that their sins might be atoned for rather than God saying, no deal, I'm not accepting your sacrifice. You and all the people are still covered in your sin and I'm going to keep bringing judgment upon you. Wouldn't there be one that would do that? 
Well, praise be to God for Jesus, the great high priest who himself came and not only made an offering, but was an offering, who he himself laid down his life as the perfect priest to give up his body as the perfect sacrifice and then to rise from the dead as the righteous one who now is seated at the right hand of the Father in the Melchizedekian order, who ever lives to make intercession for us as the great eternal high priest who is ours forever, who intercedes even now, which liberates us from the fear of being under priests who their sin is going to cause us to, to not know God rightly because we have Jesus who tells us who God is rightly. Now, under the new covenant, God has priests as well. Who are they? All of God's people. Jesus is the high priest. First Peter chapter 2, you are a chosen race. Or a, a ch- race. <laughs> no, that's a race and a priesthood put together. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God's people now, under the new covenant, we all serve as priests where we minister the gospel to the world that they may hear it and to one another that we may be built up in Christ. And certainly within that, God gifts some as pastors and teachers like I'm doing right now who have a greater responsibility, James 3.1, in order to represent God uh, and to speak rightly about Him. So that's, that's all there too. But we have a priest who did it right, and his sacrifice has forever been accepted so that we're not always wondering Will we live? Will we not? But we will, we will live because Christ lives forevermore as the right and true sacrifice and high priest. So only last comment of application here for us as we think about us being priests and serving under the high priestly order of, of Christ is, is notice here how I think we can take cues from the, the way that uh, the Levites were supposed to do things. You know truth, and you speak truth. This is why you read the Bible. You read the Scriptures so that you can know God's Word, so that you can speak God's Word. Not only that, He, he, he walked with me in peace and righteousness. He, he lived the truth. So we, we don't just get this, so there's no extra credit for coming to this. We want to get this to then get it down in our hearts and say, okay, Lord, how can I live this out? What are ways that my religion has become deadish or half-hearted? Lord, show me. And, and know that he doesn't scold us for us, for it, but rather he, because of Christ already done it perfect for us, he welcomes us to come and to get help. This is the gospel's for you. And then he helped others live the truth. We turn others away from iniquity. We should then be in relationship with others who are helping them to turn from, from sin. And notice here finally, the lips of the priest should guard knowledge, guards the truth of God's Word. We live in a day and age, and it's really every day and age, but we feel it because, well, this is where we live, where people want to turn down the volume of what God says and turn up the volume of whatever seems right to them. And I just want to encourage you to always be one who doesn't fall for that. To always be, not al- to not allow God's Word to be undermined or to be dismissed. That in your relationships with one another, if, you, if there's something going on that you see just clearly goes against God's Word, that you bring God's Word to bear on it and say, hey, listen, I've been praying about this after you've been praying about it, and 
I noticed something's going on. Let's just talk about it. Like God's word's really clear about this. I see this going on. Help, let's talk. What's happening? And help one another to live out the truth rather than edit it. So those are the first two oracles, including the longest of them. What, uh, what questions would you have about the second oracle here? Anybody have any, any questions either about what it means or how it's applied? All right, then I'm going to look for something edifying or helpful from it. So it doesn't have to be something they have a question about. I'd be interested to hear a reflection as you heard this section that was helpful for you. You're like, I think I needed to hear this. This was good for my soul. I'll take two of those. I'm Anthony. First of all, everything was edifying. But I think in particular, your last point, and also um, I really liked how you talked about how these priests were exercising bad religion. And I understand your point now about, you know, it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. So I kind of identified um, with that comment that you made. And I, I'll just uh, say, I just want to repeat what I wrote in my notes. And, but you said uh, God says that there is good religion. It's a system. It's systems and discipline and things that we do to ori orient ourselves rightly with God. And God is actually the one prescribing this good religion. So we can, you know, our ultimate goal is to be right with God and to the how, how we're living is to magnify his glory. So thank you for that. Yeah. And just even with that religion comment, this is James, right? Um, speaks about religion that is, that is worthless. But he also says, um, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So there is religion before God's eyes that is pure and true and good and pleasing to him. So, yeah, praise God. Thank you. Yeah. Hey, this is Micah. Um, so I think I was just encouraged reflecting on kind of the flip between Zephaniah where we were yesterday and where we're at in Malachi. Because I feel like my heart can flip between those two in the sense that, like, hey, my heart's given into idolatry. And then I try to kind of in my own strength do the same thing that the Israelites are doing here, right? Like, well, hey, we can get a hold of that. I can come up with some rules to stop what's going on in my heart that's leading me away from God. Um, if you're not careful, like, that can just be dead religion at the end of the day. So, yeah, it's just been encouraging just to see that, like, hey, your heart can be in both directions. Both are wrong. And what God really wants is you. He really wants you to, to pursue and to love him. Um, and just the, the many different ways that your heart can be led away from that. That's great. Yeah, it's, and, and we and, and just want to acknowledge that it's normal to vacillate between these struggles and in these struggles. So the goal is to be growing in our affections. So it's not like you get it together and then you're good. That's just not the Christian life. What it, Micah, who serves as an elder, his experience is something that all of us do, right? That we, we wrestle with our sin in the different ways that it, it shows up, and that's, that's why we need the gospel. So, yeah, good, good. Uh, Dennis, um, so from an edifying standpoint, I think where my heart was drawn was a, as a father in my home, where, where so often the battles are, are, are rage, and it's the competition with things like Disney Plus and all these other things that are out there, right? And I, you know, to me, the questions were, you know, how, 
you can look at negative or positive, but you know, how can I bring more honor, more uh, you know, service and, and, and uh, you know, to God in the midst of all these competing you know, yeah. affections of the heart, you know, where you, you, know, you tend to want to not, not please the children or make them happy, but you, you, know, you want to kind of you know, bring them up. But it's, it's, you know, I find the battle in the home to be, to be you know, raging at times. And so this was really edifying from the standpoint of you know, what, what really is, should be primary uh, in, in the home. That's great. Yeah. So, uh, whether you're at home, you have um, whether you have kiddos or not, or whether you have roommates or just in your community, I think you want to make sure that this is, yeah, God and His Word. We want we want them to be honored. This is this is who we are, uh, and 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 know that it's it is a battle. It's it, it is a it's a struggle, but the Lord gives gives help. It's good. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to take a a a break. Father, we thank you for this word, and we pray that you would guard us from half-hearted, dead religion, and that you would make us a people who love you and honor you uh, as you are worthy. So give us grace to follow you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.